1: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at PublishersWeekly.com slash PWRadio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox, and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world.
1: On today's show, ballerina Michaela DePrince talks about writing her memoir, Taking Flight, with her mother. Then Calvin Reed recaps the hustle and bustle of New York Comic-Con.
0: But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publisher's Weekly Bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan.
1: So what's in nonfiction?
0: Well, we've got a couple of thingies here, a couple of books. Um, let me talk food first. I had, uh, number two, uh, Thug Kitchen. I'm going to talk about a couple of cookbooks, actually, mm-hmm. so uh, that are on the top 20 bestseller list uh, for nonfiction. Uh, so Thug Kitchen, uh, the official cookbook, eat like you give a F star CK. <laughs> uh, this is by Thug Kitchen. It's a kitchen. Um, it's, it's a really popular website. uh, uh <laughs> <laughs> to, to try and inspire people to eat some vegetables uh uh Gwyneth Paltrow uh loves the site Sever, uh said it's one of the best new food blogs of 2013 and obviously they got a lot of following so this is number two this is uh, this is a book and we knew it was going to be a big one once once uh once it was released the other one at number 16 a little way down the list is America Farm to Table Simple Delicious Recipes Celebrating Local Farmers and this is Mario Batali uh, who's writing with Jim Webster who is a writer used to be for the I believe it was the Tampa Tribune mm-hmm. Webster uh, tends to write a lot of the, uh, the looks to be like sidebars and not surprisingly the cookbook is Italian inspired even though it's across America but there are plenty of uh, of, of non-Italian inspired recipes in these hundred or so, uh, selections. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, this is the first time that Mario Batali is going to a new publisher, Grand Central Publishing. And, um, looks like it's paid off with number 16. And I've got three books, uh, music books, uh, at number 12. Let me talk about the, the highest one here. Uh, Joe Perry. Uh, we all know him as the guitarist, uh, lead guitarist for Aerosmith. Mm-hmm. His book is called rocks, my life in and out of, uh, Aerosmith. So it talks about him growing up in Massachusetts suburbs in the fifties and being inspired by Chuck Berry leading through, uh, all his life as a rocker. And, um, and some. So uh, then we also have One Direction. Uh, this is the new hot group that's out there that all mm-hmm. the kids just love. It's by One Direction. One Direction, Who We Are, Our Official Autobiography. And uh, that's at number 17. Finally, at number 19, Dancing with Myself by none other than Billy Idol. And um, uh, it's this a great a group, autobiography
1: you know. title. Yes, exactly. Exactly.
0: <laughs> and uh, it was a great song, and uh, we really liked it. So. Uh, everything from his uh, early band Generation X to uh, what he's doing now.
2: Well,
1: over on the fiction list, we've got a lot of movement. Uh, the first thing that jumped out at me when I was looking down the list is uh, lots of Christmas titles. It's that time of year. Uh, usually uh, the Christmas books start coming out in October. A couple months ago, I did a roundup of Christmas romances. Mm-hmm. Always a big thing. Uh, there are Christmas... Uh, historical romances, Christmas contemporary romances, Christmas cowboy romances, Christmas werewolf oh, wow. romances, ah. uh, Christmas navy seal romances, Christmas navy seal werewolf romances. Uh, oh, wow! There's a, there's a whole variety. Um, <laughs> those we don't see on the hardcover fiction list because uh, they're all published in mass market, but a few big names in women's fiction, um, which has very close ties to the romance world, uh, have hit the list. So at number four, we have Mr. Miracle, a Christmas novel by mm-hmm. Debbie McComber. Great. Number ten is The Christmas Bouquet by Cheryl Woods. And down at number 19 is The Christmas Wedding Ring by Susan Mallory. And these are all all very, very big names, perennial bestsellers uh, who really made their mark in romance and are now considered more part of the women's fiction world, which as far as I can tell means they're published in hardcover and they sell really well. Great. And uh, so that, uh, that was of interest. And beyond that, uh, we have a, a bunch of starred review books from Publishers Weekly doing very well on the the bestseller list. At number one, Deadline by John Sanford, who was a guest on PW Radio a while back.
2: I remember, And sure.
1: uh, this is his eighth thriller uh, featuring Virgil Flowers and... Um, it's called Deadline, and it's uh, you know, it's, it's his typical investigation with a lot of humor, a lot of fun, um, and very high stakes. And so uh, we said that Sanford is an accomplished and amusing storyteller, and he both, nails both the rural characters and terrain, as well as he has skewered urban life in past installments. So this is one for the small town readers, mm-hmm. and uh, they've liked it enough to put it at number one, just edging out James Patterson's Burn, which was at number one. One last week. Right. And a little further down the list, uh, we have Lila by Marilyn Robinson. This is at number eight. We also gave this a starred review. It's the third of three novels set in the fictional plains town of Gilead, Iowa. Uh, we say it's a masterpiece of prose in the service of the moral seriousness that distinguishes Robinson's work. We have a quite a lengthy review, actually, up on on PW, and uh, you know it'll it'll be very interesting to see whether this one continues to do well. And uh, number eight is a very solid showing for uh, a, a novel's first week on the list. Um, And finally, going down a little bit further, number 12, Some Luck by Jane Smiley. Again, we starred this one, too. This is the first volume of a planned trilogy, uh, and it's also set in Iowa, which is where Smiley set 1,000 Acres, which Mm -hmm. won her Pulitzer Prize. Um, But this one is uh, very different from the previous book, uh, which featured warring sisters and an abusive father. In this one, uh, the focus is on a loving family whose members, like most people, are uh, ordinary folks. They just have their own individual peculiarities. And uh, the story covers the 1920s through the early 50s. The the family farm survives the Depression and drought. And the five children of the family have to decide whether to stay in Iowa or strike out Mm. for other pastures. And uh, our review concludes that Smiley plans to extend the tale of the Langdon family well into the twenty-first century, uh, and that will be very exciting wow, to wow, see. Sure. So, yeah, uh, you know, she's uh, clearly off to a very good start. Great. Here. So uh, that, that's what's happening uh, on the fiction list. Uh, if there's any other thing that I would want to highlight, it would be Nora Webster by Colum Tobin. Uh, it's his tenth novel. He's a very successful. Irish author. Um, This one's down at number 21. Uh, But I think it deserves a little bit of an extra boost. Uh, We we call it a compelling portrait of an Irish woman for whom fate has prescribed loneliness. Uh, Nora is widowed at 40 with four children and shaky finances, but she rejects condolences and pity uh, and just really focuses on trying to improve her children's lives, even if that means not really giving them space to mourn for their father, because she wants everything to be normal, normal, normal. I know a lot of people who could probably identify... With both sides of that urge. Uh, so this is a, we, we say it's a portrait of a, a brave woman and to be never employs dramatic fireworks to add an artificial boost to the narrative. Uh, Nora just has to learn how to lo- find a meaningful life as she goes on alone.
0: Oh, so, glad you brought that up. It sounds
1: like a, a very, very interesting novel and maybe good for these sort of relaxed, drearier autumn days. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Next up, Michaela DePrince traces her journey from a Sierra Leone orphanage to center stage. We'll be right back.
3: Hi, this is Justin Martin, author of Rebel Souls, Walt Whitman and America's First Bohemians, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
0: Today, we've got ballerina Michaela DePrince on the line. Her memoir, co-written with her mother, Elaine DePrince, is taking flight. Hi, Michaela. So nice that you could join us.
4: Oh, thank you so much.
0: So tell us about your memoir and and what made you write it at age 19?
4: Um, Well, my mom and I actually, we didn't realize we were writing a book, but it all started out as soon as I got adopted Um, when I was four years old, um, I wanted to explain to her what had happened to me so she could understand why I was the way I was. And I told her I was only going to tell her once. And um, that was it. So she was really smart enough to, you know, get a notebook and write everything down. And, um, and somehow years later, it turned into a book. Um, But the reason why I really wanted to do it, um, because of course, at first, I didn't want to do it. But then I realized, you know, this is This is a good opportunity for me to share with people, you know, the things that I've been through and how I was able to overcome them and to show people that, you know, people go through horrible things. But if you have something positive in your life that you absolutely love, that that can help you get through anything. And that's what Bali did for me. And I want to share with the world.
0: So, and was there, at what point did you and your mother decide to sit down and write this? Was there something that had happened, a a discussion you had had or something you needed to clarify with her?
4: Um, Actually, my mom and I, we wrote um, a children's book, um, just something small and, you know, just for fun. And she sent it out to see how it would go. And then somebody emailed her back, um, Adriana, and said, oh, well, um, could you turn this into um, a memoir? And we're like, oh, okay, sure. And then we just (laughs) continued writing and, you know, put more details in it. But, you know, also at the same time, I was rehearsing a lot. And my mom and I would have to Viber and Skype and, you know, email constantly because I wasn't able to, you know, do it face to
1: face. So it was a really collaborative process. Do, do you and your mom yeah. get along well always? Was it, was it easy to collaborate with her or, you know, I know sometimes you're working on this while you're a teenager and teenagers and moms don't always have the easiest time.
4: <laughs> yeah. But I think for me, I was able to mature really fast. So I was pretty much You know, I went through my crazy phase of being a horrible teenager when I was 13, 14, 15. And then, you know, I realized, you know, my mom has done so much for me. And I think also writing this together made me realize how amazing she truly is. I knew she was great, but I didn't realize what an amazing mother she was, not just to me, but to all my siblings. And, you know, she did everything for me, and she wanted me to become something great. And she she believed in me, and so did my dad and everybody in my family, but I just didn't know the depth to that. And I think that writing it really gave me that opportunity to realize it.
1: So uh, how how many siblings do you have? Can you describe your family for us? My family is huge. Um, well, it all
4: started, um, my parents had five boys. Um, and uh, two of them passed away, but um, uh, Cubby and Michael. And Michael's dream was to adopt a child from West Africa. Um, and when he passed away, my mom, you know, she talked to my dad about it, and they ended up finding a girl in Sierra Leone. Her name was Maventi, And so my mom calls the orphanage, and she says, uh, I would like to adopt Maventi." And they say, which one? <laughs> there were two Maventis, and uh, that's how it all worked out. And so she ended up calling my dad in Japan. He was, you know, he was sleeping at the time, and it was nighttime, and um, she was in New Jersey. And she said, well, there's this girl that nobody wants, and I think we should adopt her. And my dad said, okay, and then went back to bed. He woke up the next morning and said, oh, I had a dream. You called me to adopt another girl, and I just was like, oh, that's crazy. And she said, yeah, I have the paperwork done and everything. And then that's how we both got adopted, me and I. Hmm. And then my mom ended up adopting another girl, Mario, who was also in the orphanage with me um, and Mia, um, because her adoptive family didn't want her anymore. So we begged my mom to please adopt her. And then we wanted an older sister and so my mom adopted an older girl from Liberia, my older sister Ami. Um and then my brother adopted two kids from um Liberia too with uh, um when my mom adopted Ami and that ended up not working out. So then I have two younger sisters now. So there's 11 kids in total.
0: My gosh. <laughs> wow. And the uh, your brothers yeah. you had, the brothers you had talked about were they also adopted or are they biological?
4: Uh, two of them are biological, and three were adopted.
0: Wow, oh, that's wonderful. And you the grew up in. New- ended
4: up having. Um, they all had AIDS. so three of them.
0: Mm. Oh, wow. Wow, and you grew up in New Jersey.
4: Yeah, I grew up in New Jersey. Um, I moved when I was almost 11 years old um, to Vermont, but I couldn't dance there. But there was absolutely no training in dance that was good enough that I want. I wanted to become something great, so I wanted you know the best. So I ended up um, going to Philadelphia to train at the Rock School. And my my dad was working in New Jersey, but I barely got to see my family that were living in Vermont. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to New York City. So I, I feel like, you know, New York City was where I found myself. And, you know, yeah. everybody finds themselves in New York City. Um, I was there for two years and then my family moved and... Um, yeah. And then I came here.
0: Yeah. I I wanted, I, I want to talk to you. Uh, you know, we want to talk to you about your ballet and your dance, but, but I just had a couple questions first in your, in your memoir, you, you talk about how the, 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 the state under which you were adopted. You had just mentioned that um, uh, according to your mother, that uh, you and the, the girl who had become your sister were unwanted. What was going on in Sierra Le- Leone at the time? And, and what, brought you to be uh, put into an orphanage?
2: Um,
4: In Sierra Leone, there was a civil war at the time, and, um, you know, it happened really fast. And, you know, of course, I was a little oblivious about it when I was with my biological parents Mm -hmm. um, until my father got killed. Mm
2: -hmm. And
4: then that's when it all went downhill because, you know, my parents, they believed in me, and a lot of people in the village in general thought they were crazy for even keeping me as a child, as their child. And the fact that they were also educating me to become something, you know, I learned many, many languages and they wanted me to become something great and not to just be stuck in Sierra Leone. And so when my father got killed, my my uncle took us in and he hated the fact that they were keeping, you know, this girl, the devil's child in their house. And so he would punish my mother and um, whenever she got punished, he wouldn't give us food. And when we did get food, it was pretty much nothing. So my my biological mother would always give me food, and she ended up starving to death. Wow. And so my uncle brought me to the orphanage because he didn't want anything to do with me. And I I for me I didn't understand why because I you know I didn't get it you know as a little child. And um, in general, in Sierra Leone, I don't know how you say it, but they just assumed that when people were different, those people that were different would cause them problems. Like if they you know somebody got really sick and a lot of people were dying it would be my fault or if somebody you know if they didn't have enough crops that year it was my fault because the devil's child was around in the village and so my uncle brought me to the orphanage and just left me there and never came to visit me or nothing and I was always hoping every single day you know that he would come or you know that my father didn't really die and you know it was all made up and I believe that too when my brother Teddy passed away in the US I, I knew they passed away I just I didn't want to believe it. And so, yeah, I just... And then finally somebody in the orphanage saw something in me, my teacher Sarah, and she would, you know, stay late and always help me with, you know, just practicing my languages and, you know, just making me happy in general. And when she got killed in front of me, Mm. it was pretty Mm. much the end of the world for me because, yes, I had... She was my mate and she helped me through everything, but I needed that adult figure to, you know to let me know that everything was gonna be okay. And after she was killed, I just, you know, I just, I didn't believe in anything. I mean, what good could possibly happen to me, you know? And then I found this amazing magazine and this this thing that brought life into me again at such a young age, and um, actually found out who the ballerina was last year. Um, and she used to also dance here at the Dutch National Ballet, but um, this ballerina in the front of the magazine, she was my hope and she was everything that I wanted to be. And I know this is hard to explain, but you know, when you see something and you just, I don't know, you get moved by it. And the fact that I got moved by it was because she was happy and I wanted to be happy one day. and, And I knew that, you know, if she was happy, maybe I could be happy. And in order for me to be happy, I had to become her. And then when I got adopted, it just, my dreams came true and it all happened so fast and, you know, just perfectly. And, of course, there were struggles with, you know, being black and being in the ballet world, of course. But, you know, overall, I I was very, very lucky to be, you know, adopted by my mother and my father here. And um, just, I'm a very lucky child, yeah.
0: You mentioned uh, about um, you're being referred to as the devil's child. Why, why was that?
4: Um, it was just what they saw in me, and they assumed, you know, the the fact that I had the ligo, they didn't understand what it was. It was a skin condition, not a disease,
2: mm-hmm. and
4: they thought, you know, that there was something wrong with me, and I must be the child of the devil. You know, of course, also at the same time, I did have this fiery personality, and I'm sure that didn't help, but also the fact that I was much so different from everybody else, mm-hmm. it was crazy to them that I could be a normal person
0: and this and this uh uh this was a skin discoloration that you talked about,
4: yes um right. my uh skin pigment Got it's it. um light in some areas yeah
1: that's right it looks sort of like uh, reverse freckles i'm I'm trying to, to yeah. figure out how to describe it for <laughs> right. our, for our radio audience here uh, it's like having spots that's what that's what I
2: call it
0: spots. Mm. So let's talk. I, 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 I that, that image of you looking at a dance magazine, who was it who was on the cover? And you were, you must have been four years old, right before you were adopted, yeah. right?
4: Yeah. Um, I'm sure I'm pronouncing her name wrong, but it turned out to be this dancer who was dancing at the time at the Pennsylvania Ballet. Her name is Magelic Massac. Mm-hmm. Um, she's currently living in the States and, um, we get to email every every so often, and, you know, she tells me inspiring things, and she gives me, you know, advice, and she's such a lovely lady. And um, when I did um, a TV show here called The College Tour, she sent a video, and I had no idea that she did that, and I was so surprised that I was able to, you know, the fact that she knew who I was and it made me, it just it really touched me and I ended up crying during the show because I had no idea that this person knew who I was and that she was the reason why I am, I'm here today and, you know, dancing every day and doing what I love. It's just, you know, I'm just, I feel like, you know, it was meant to be and I'm not a very spiritual person, but I feel like it was fate that I found her and that, you know, I'm also dancing where she used to
1: dance and it's just, it's, Amazing I think for to me. Mm-hmm. H- how did you end up with the Dutch National Ballet? Um, well three
4: years ago, I got the opportunity to come and perform in Den Haag mm-hmm. with the, the Dutch don't dance division um, and uh, Because uh, Tom and Renis, um, the directors of this company they said oh, why don't you go and take class and just see the company I never heard of you know Dutch National ballet because I was always focused on American ballet theater that 's the only place I ever want to be um I never you know i just like never thought there were any you know other companies that great and um so I got to see class and I saw one of the ballet dancers um anna um she's one of our principals here, and all the other dancers were so beautiful and the atmosphere it was as if I was home and I just i felt comfortable and I felt you know so I, I wasn't self-conscious about myself. I felt like, you know, I could become something here, and I was just inspired by one class, and I thought to myself, what happens if I, you know, I got accepted here, how how inspired could I be? And, you know, I just, I knew this was the place I wanted to be, and so I auditioned. I came back the next year, and um, I auditioned, and I found out that they were having a junior company, a new junior company, and um, they said if I they asked if I wanted to join, and I said, yes, of course, and um, now I'm in the main company, and uh, I just got to perform uh, my first soloist role in uh, Swan Lake. I got to do uh, Pas de deux, which was really exciting because I was sixth cast and I wasn't supposed to do it for a while. And, you know, they gave me an opportunity because people were injured and I got to perform it and they were very patient with me. And um, I also got an opportunity to perform A Million Kisses to My Skin by David Dawson um, in the premiere and a few other shows. And um It's just such a wonderful place here, and, you know, this is where I want to be, and I think I can become, you know, the artist I've always dreamt of being. And, of course, maybe if I don't become a principal one day, I'll I'll totally be okay with that because I know I will be able to become the artist that I've always dreamt of being here.
1: We're going to take a quick break, (laughs) but don't go away.
0: Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella.
1: Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio.
0: Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com.
1: Welcome back. We're talking with Michaela De Prince, the author of Taking Flight, who's telling us about her incredible journey from uh, Sierra Leone orphanage to the stage. And uh it's just it's it's amazing hearing how passionate you are about ballet. It's sort of hard to believe that it, at 4 years old you could know that this was something that was really going to stick with you for the rest of your life.
4: Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, when I was 8 years old, um when I found out that, you know, When my mom asked one of my teachers, you know, what can Michaela do to become better? And, you know, my mom was always like that with all my siblings to help us succeed in what we wanted to do. When my teacher told my mom that, you know, we don't believe in black dancers because we don't put a lot of effort into black dancers because we all end up getting fat and ended up, wow. like, boobs and big size, Yeah, huh? yeah. First of all, I'm sorry, but you guys, I don't know if you've seen pictures of me, but I have no boobs whatsoever. <laughs> but it's just, it was so interesting to me because I was so discouraged and I didn't understand why they thought I was going to turn out to be like somebody else when we're all so different. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, at that age, I thought, oh, well, my, one of my favorite teachers thinks, you know, that I'm just going to become fat. Why am I dancing? And so then, you know, I, I went to different schools and, you know, I worked with a bunch of amazing, amazing, you know, teachers. And, you know, they really believed in me. And I had a bunch of also teachers who, you know, looked the other way because they, they want to put a lot of effort. But those so I did have a lot of teachers who did believe in me and they helped me become the dancer I am today. And um, one of those teachers I would have to say would be um, Franco Davida and Raymond Lukins at American Ballet Theatre and they really believed in me and they helped me become a lot more classical than I used to be and um, they, they really helped me a lot and my teachers here are absolutely wonderful and they believe in me too.
0: Well be- I think
4: they do. That's what they're showing. So <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I, I mean uh even though your uh hometown ballet school didn't uh believe in you based on the color of your skin, it looked like American Ballet Theater School did. Uh what age were you yeah. when you when you uh, auditioned and, and got in? Mm, well I'm trying to think. I
4: believe I was 13 when I got accepted I didn't really audition Mm. per se um I did their summer intensive every year Mm -hmm. um and I I think it was my second year I did it yeah or third year they accepted me and I was 14 um and at that time I was like oh am I really going to be a ballet dancer I don't know if this is actually for me again you know I was going through that phase but then you know they they were patient with me again and they worked hard and they just wanted me to become something, and you know i they helped me believe in myself, which also you know I think helped me a lot, you know and I didn't believe that I could become a ballerina or a ballet dancer um and that's what um american ballet theater uh, j k o did for me and um yeah
1: and then um you joined the dance theater of Harlem, did that help a bit to to be in the center of black American culture and surrounded by other dancers who had also dealt with the the same kinds of prejudice?
4: Yeah, I mean, that was so inspiring. And, you know, I've always looked up to Arthur Mitchell, and I got to go to the summer intensive when I was really young, and I got to work with him a lot, which was absolutely amazing. But um, I really wanted to do really classical um, ballet works, and um, I wasn't getting it there at the Institute of Harlem. And at the time, also, when I was there, I thought I was a little too immature to be in the company at the time. Um, they were doing a lot of old works and I felt like just I felt silly doing it because I felt like a child. And of course eventually I do want to go back and when I'm done doing the work and you know, and work with them. Um and just the fact that I got to work with Virginia Johnson and yeah. all these beautiful black ballerinas and ballet masters and it's just it was a dream come true and I'm I'm just so grateful that I got the opportunity to work with a company like that.
1: So your, your book is full of inspiring messages, and you also mentioned um, some other bits of inspiration that you've received. What kept you going through those times when you were saying, is ballet right for me? Can I really do this?
4: You no, know, it's hard to say something specific, but it's just, I loved it so much, you know? And it made me, it was like as if, I don't know, how would I say it? It gave me a chance to be a princess. Every time I was on stage, it gave me a chance to be a child again, and, you know, I didn't really have a great beginning of my childhood, so for that, it helped me become happy to go to class every day, to work hard, and I'm a very determined person, and, you know, I work very hard, and um it, that kept me going, and my peers kept me going, my family, the support of my family was, you know, 150%, 200 or however high you want to go, but their support really helped me to continue. And you know, sometimes I'd come home to my mom and say, "Oh, mom, I'm so tired. I don't know if I can do this anymore." She said, "No, you'll be fine." And you know, there's times where I thought I couldn't dance anymore because I wasn't good enough. She would say, "No, no, no. Just come go tomorrow to class, and you'll realize you'll you'll realize that this is actually what you want to do." And you know, my mom really helped me a lot, and um, everybody that you know believed in me helped me a lot.
0: Going back to um, your your formative years in ballet, I, I mean, it seems like it's a, a cloistered, kind of rarefied world. I think, especially for girls, and it's uh, and it's as you had mentioned, not always welcoming for people of color. Um, how tough was it? I, I mean, how did you deal with the prejudice? Did you feel that with your 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 fellow uh, classmates or just the instructors?
4: Um, I didn't really feel that with my fellow classmates because. The thing is, I was always the youngest in my class. Mm-hmm. And so one year well, a few years this happened. Um, people would say, Oh, well, she's eight years old so she must be thirteen because she's in a class with thirteen year olds. So she's lying about her age. That's mm-hmm. the thing mm-hmm. I went through. And, you know, it was very hard for me and when at some point, you know, I got I used to have a I don't know if you heard of this page on um, form spring and people could write you messages, and people were saying, we all know you're lying about your age, just kill yourself, nobody likes you dancing in our class, and like, I just, I got really upset, and I just, I didn't understand why they were being so mean, and my mom explained to me, you know, that they're jealous, and that you shouldn't focus on that, and you know, the thing is, I worked hard, and I worked hard to be in that class, and I wanted to be there, it's not like I just, you know, I had talent, and I just showed up every day and did what I had to do. But I wanted to be there, and you know, being in that class with older kids inspired me to become like them. Wow. So for me, it was very upsetting to hear that. But the only time, wow. you know, I it was, you know, I went through racist points in my life, or when people thought, you know, oh, well, we can't have her as Marie because she's black, and you know, America's not ready for a black ballerina, or that, Jeez. you know, I would end up getting fat with big groups and big thighs. Or it's just, it's just, I never underst- I never understood that, you know, when he said that, and it was very upsetting. But at the same time, you just, you can't focus on things like that. And you just, you, I don't know, for me, I've always wanted to prove people wrong. Mm-hmm. So when they said that, I was like, okay, fine. Okay, that's great, but I'm just going to be wrong and work harder. And that's what I did.
0: Well, I actually studied ballet as well, and I came up here, studied uh, with the Joffrey, and I studied with a couple of other oh. dance companies. And I always thought that the culture of ballet was was seemed to be pretty emotionally and mentally bruising for young girls, especially. Oh and, yes, and, <laughs> yeah. And I, I I wonder if that's changed. I know it's starting to change in in athletics, such as football. Hockey, where where the coaches are not are 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 encouraged not to yell or demean the um, uh, uh, the the students the uh, you know the, the players, has that changed at all in ballet or is there still a culture of that?
4: Um, you know, it depends on where you are, and mm-hmm. but at, at sometimes you know teachers would yell at you, and of course sometimes I think that's the better way to do things. But mm-hmm. for me personally, I'm not going to do that when I teach, right? Because it really the negative energy just doesn't make you want to work hard and it just upsets everybody and then you have that atmosphere, it's really uncomfortable. And I did have that in different schools, but at the same time it can push you when people are saying neat things to you, you know, your
2: teachers. Mm-hmm.
4: But I don't think it's very healthy and, you know, sometimes when teachers say things like that, like, Oh, you're fat, you need to lose weight or stop having too many. I had one teacher, I did have a lot of food at this time, but my teacher said, Stop having so many Cheetos, you won't fit in your cheetos. And, um, but at the same time, you know, I was a child and I had body fat and I had to just grow up. And, you know, that was a little hurtful for me. And so, you know, um, I started smoking um, at a very young age. And um, I thought, Oh, if I do this, this is going to help me. And so I lost a lot of weight and they were really happy about it. And that made me really sad because I wasn't with myself because they were happy at the fact that I got skinnier and, um, yeah, it was a lot. And I feel like that kind of energy is not very good. It's not a good atmosphere to work in. And, um, but the thing is they don't do that here in the company. And I believe in most companies they don't do that. Um, because it's just more like, Oh, you have to work hard and you have to prove yourself. And I'm not going to tell you what to do because you're an adult.
1: So um, who do you think is going to read your book? Is it aimed at um, other people in the ballet world, at other maybe little girls who are dreaming of being princesses on stage?
4: Um, well I'm hopeful I'm hoping everybody does. Um one of my uh one of the company members here, uh, Remy, who is from um, Canada, um, he has read my book, um, which is absolutely I think is really cool. Um, one of my best friends um here who's Dutch has read my book too. Um and, you know, a bunch of my friends have ordered it and my teachers from the past have ordered it and, you know, little girls have ordered it. So I'm really excited and I feel like, you know, it's just it's it's a great book, and I think it's really easy to read and just to go through, and, you know, I feel like, you know, every age will enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And I know it's so bad to say, oh, my book is so great, but, like, I, I'm just <laughs> I'm so happy with how it turned out, and, you know, I'm so proud of my mom, and I'm just, it's just, when I, when I was looking over it to find, like, you know, sometimes you have to find your favorite part to read, and, like, I, you know, had to look through it. And I just, I started crying last year and we like really finished it. And I said, mom, I want to come home. I miss you so much. Cause you know, when reading through it, you realize again, oh my God, my mom did so much for me. I was like, yeah, I know she did a lot, but I didn't know how much. And it's just amazing. I, I really hope everybody enjoys it. And I hope that, you know, it inspires people and gives people hope. And that's pretty much what I've always wanted to do is give people hope. That's beautiful.
1: Well, thank you so much for sharing some of your hope with us. And uh, I hope that your career continues to flourish. Ah, yeah, me too.
2: <laughs>
1: We've been talking with Michaela DePrince. You can find her book, Taking Flight, in stores right now. Michaela, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you so
0: much. I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: Next up, Calvin Reed takes us to New York Comic Con. So stay tuned.
4: I'm Diane Ackerman, the author of Human Age, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
1: Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, Calvin Reed is here to tell us all about New York Comic Con, which just wrapped up. Hi, Calvin.
3: Hi there. How you guys doing?
1: It's always very nice to have you here. Oh,
3: well, it's good to be here. <laughs> so um, <laughs> recovering the, from Comic Con, and question, you didn't even have to leave the city.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: the question on everyone's lips is: Did the cosplayers destroy Comic
3: Con? Uh, you. You're familiar with as the, was As was the prophecy. <laughs> You're much for, very familiar. Uh, no, uh, they did not destroy it. They were certainly out in force. Uh, you know, cosplayers and Comic-Con go together like soup and sandwich. Uh, there was a bit of an, uh, an unusual dust-up, internet dust-up about cosplayers. Um, I don't know if you want me to give a little background on that. actually do, because yeah, uh, there are folks uh, like me you know, who don't know who sure, about any yeah, of well, this. Well, I, I don't want to... I'm afraid I'll get the names wrong, but... But the, but the wife of actually a fairly uh, prominent um, comics artist who also does a lot of illustrations for Star Wars and have been going to the various Comic-Cons for years, uh, selling a variety of things. And for, for those who may not know, individual artists go to the various Comic-Cons uh, and generally they're in the artist alley. Um, now, these can be a small... Uh, aspiring unknown artist, or Jim Lee. I mean, the biggest names in the business, and they'll they'll take a little table, and they'll do signings and sell original art sketches right from there. Um, this particular uh, woman, in, in the best, uh, really with the best intentions, she did a blog post saying that. Uh, well, her her her, what she really was trying to say, um, I think everyone agrees, is that the nature of. Comic cons are changing. The nature of fandom is changing. It's diversifying beyond uh, the stereotypical, um, you know, lonely white dude. Um, It's much bigger, much broader, and there are new tensions out there. Uh, How it came out was that. Uh, and I, excuse me if I mangle her position, but that somehow or other, cosplays, among other things, uh, have turned Comic Cons uh, or comics conventions into social platforms and not commercial uh, platforms. Um, now, the problem is that. She's she's not completely wrong, but she's she sounds wrong. (laughs) Uh, The fact is, um, and in fact, uh, part of Comic-Con this year and every year, really, really kicks off every year with a half day, uh, half day uh, conference um, uh, sponsored by the ICB2.com, which is a pop culture trade news website. And their focus usually is on data on the the, uh, the the comic segment, uh, particularly on books and graphic novels, which has really one of the fastest growing sections in a in a business that used to be all periodical. Um, one of the things we did this year, because the last two years have seen really incredible growth uh, and, the, and a return um, to, to growth in the category, was to look at the new customers in the comic space, who they are. And I tell you, we had data and surveys from Eventbrite, the uh, online ticketing service, uh, from ICB2, of CEO Milton Griep, who sponsors it. He does a white paper every year that looks, looks at, the, at the data. Uh, what we got back was that really anywhere from 40 to 47% of comic fandom, of people who are buying or interested in comics, are women. I mean, and when you get under 30 uh, if I'm not mistaken, in the Eventbrite uh, survey, uh, it's 50-50. Mm-hmm. This is a radical transformation of yeah. how the comics, and essentially really the pop culture space, uh, um, hmm. looks at itself and what it sees in the mirror. Right. Uh, it's not really just a white dude anymore. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's, it's women in particular, probably the fastest growing segment, but obviously it's minorities as well. And what's happening is that Fans are coming to uh the shows looking for different kinds of things. Some people are there to buy original art or to you know to get a sketch of a superhero. Other people want books they want a cosplay uh One of the things that came out of the survey, I should say also is that cosplayers buy as much stuff as everybody else mm-hmm. so let's put that myth to rest. Mm. But one of the things I think we have learned is that the the fan space is a really unique and interesting space, and that lots of people are in there doing lots of things that give them intense pleasure uh, what we have as publishers and the like um, need to take advantage of is to get there and deliver what they want uh, and not you know, come up with um, uh, uh, scapegoats for natural and actually important transitions in the, the uh, demographics that go to these shows
1: yeah, I, I have a friend uh, who does a lot of costuming, and uh, she she is very very adamant that she absolutely goes there with money. That it, her her plan is to spend most of the weekend in costume without a big heavy bag, but going around and looking at all sure. the stuff she wants to get, and then Sunday she comes back in street clothes uh, with with the
3: backpack and shops and shops and shops uh, and shops. Makes sense to me. I mean, that's the other thing about the cosplayers; they're there like every day. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're like the the press. <laughs> so. <laughs> so but but that, and I, uh, certainly our, our conference kind of put that myth to rest, but actually there, there certainly was a lot of dialogue in response to that, uh, mm-hmm. I think, that addressed the issue as well. But one of the things, um, uh, I'll put it this way, diversity is clearly an issue in the pop culture fandom space. It's certainly an issue in comics publishing. Um, If you look at the headline on the story that Heidi and I wrote in our final report, it's diversity and pop culture reign at Comic-Con. New York Comic-Con this year, um, first of all, it was... The biggest, um, it, the, the attendance was the biggest of any North American pop culture convention ever. You're, bigger than oh, San it's Diego. So
1: 150,000 people.
3: 151,000 wow. people. Bigger than wow. San Diego, which is capped at about 130, though most people think it's about 150 when you count the professional badges, which are not counted. Uh, those are pure ticket sales. Um, mm. Not to mention that the fact that there were panels that touched on or specifically focused on diversity throughout the programming, mm. at least a dozen panels. The three or four that I went to were packed with enthusiastic uh, audiences asking questions and really making it known that, hey, this is the face of comic book fandom going forward. It's a little different than it may have been in the past. Uh, we're happy to be here and we, and first of all, we're here whether you like it or not, so get used to it. And, and it's actually, and let's be real, it's making for a better broader, more exciting uh, pop culture fan space.
0: And what is the difference between New York and San Diego uh, Comic-Con? What's the experience like? Uh, Well, the weather
3: is radically different. (laughs) (laughs) San Diego, 75 degrees um, every day that I can tell. Uh, You know, the the biggest difference um, is that, well, first of all, San Diego, if you wanted to sketch out a place that was the most perfect place in the world to hold a convention... You know, San Diego would probably win. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, the weather is gorgeous. Uh, the food is really great. The convention center, the San Diego Convention Center, is situated as almost the either the end or the beginning mm-hmm. of downtown San Diego. Um, you can choose it either way. And when you walk out of the, one of the main entrances... Um, particularly along where the commuter railroad is, you're walking into downtown uh, San Diego, and it's as look, it's like a giant welcoming mat. And what's in front of you? Restaurants, bars, shopping, you name it. It's it's really uh, it's as if Jabbits were set down in the West Village. Mm. Uh, so I mean, it's nothing to be on the floor and say enough, and I'm going I'm to go out for lunch. And I'm going to get as far away from the floor as I can. Run out the thing, go up and get a terrific lunch in a great restaurant, and then run right back in. And there's that no airport, doing it in New York. That's no. That's not <laughs> happening Javits, at the right, Javits right. Center. <laughs> Maybe in some faraway future when right. they get the uh, the subway station there, hmm. you know, little things are popping up. But let's face it, th- it there's nothing. You, you know, once you leave Ninth Avenue. You're, right you know, yeah. it 's a wasteland uh, other things uh, there 's in way more programming in san diego i mean it 's an enormous amount of programming about everything you can think of. Uh, New York Comic Con this year probably had its best programming slate ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been, I've uh, been involved with the programming at New York Comic Con in the past, and uh, it had some logistical problems as well as some, some goofiness problems. But um, <laughs> I think uh, this year, uh, I attended multiple panels that I thought were well put together. Um, all of the panelists got were notified and knew where to go that wasn't always the case Mm -hmm. Um, that said this year uh, I think you have to give kudos to them they did a great job and I should say one other thing that New York Comic Con um, has done really well and in some ways it differs a little bit uh, from San Diego although not in how it's enforced is the anti-harassment policy
2: Mm.
3: now San Diego has a very good record uh, of dealing with harassment. Um, talk about the, the types of harassment. Is this, well, is this
0: like the, uh, the uh, there was in the New York times about the gaming industry. Uh,
3: well, that's certainly a part of it. I mean, the diversity issue that we're talking about in the pop culture mm-hmm. areas, particularly in college, we're talking about gender uh, as well right. as race. I mean, it, when we talk about the traditional book industry, which we're a part of, more often we're talking about race right. and not, Gender. There's plenty of women in the book uh, industry, though you know you can you can argue about the upper echelons, right? Uh, in the pop culture business, uh, it is there are real problems. Mm-hmm. Well, like I said, in the game, like in the game, and then the gaming—that's the part uh, of the pop culture the, industry. Yeah. Yep. Uh And the gaming industry, and look, let's face it: technology and technology in general, particularly when you're talking about developing games, coding and programming—it's a you know it has been a male preserve. Um and there's some clearly some nasty people there uh, yeah. that um uh, because of what's stuff going on around Gamer uh, Gamergate and uh, right. Anita uh, Sarkeesian. Right. Uh, That's appalling exactly stuff. To, right? Absolutely appalling yeah. stuff. On the comics uh, industry side You know the online abuse that women take—it's all there. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. What you know, what women go through online, uh, trying to just to debate an issue, is is off the hook. Mm. It's just you know, crazy stuff is said uh, with the intent to drive them out of the discussion. Mm. Um, uh, The comics industry has been uh, dealing with this also employment. Just the whole thing, you know. This just, yeah. the, you know, the comics industry is so used to, particularly when it was a completely superhero focused industry, and so many of the fans were all men mm-hmm. who were either creating them or buying them and reading them. Now we've got, and I, if I may say so, thanks to the book industry channel,
2: mm-hmm.
3: we're getting a not only a um, not only fighting for diversity in terms of who are producing and reading the comics, but we're producing uh, diverse diversity in genre. We've expanded beyond the superhero. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with superheroes. I love superhero comics. I don't love them as much as I used to when I was, you know, <laughs> a little younger. But you know, they evolved, uh, like every other literary form evolves. But what we're seeing now in the uh, bookstore space and in the new comics market space are a wider, wider variety of genres uh, uh, in book format. And I think many of the new fans, uh, particularly, for, for instance, um manga fans and anime fans. You know they're not interested in long running superhero franchises. They're interested in well told stories uh, that are in either one volume or or released in book form. So the industry and fandom is going through uh trying to adjust to these new fans. Mm. And you know what? They better adjust to them because they're not going anywhere.
1: Right. So the, uh, to get back to the anti-harassment policy, yes. which oh. is what uh,
3: started <sighs> us down yeah, this Yeah, Well, it, it, uh, a lot of the anti-harassment policies focus on cosplayers, um, you know, because basically a lot of them are about, you know, keep your hands to yourself. Uh, also, uh, co- uh, conventions get a lot of pranksters. Um, now, I- I'm using pranksters. That sounds like a harmless... Thing, you know, somebody's shooting shaving cream at you. But, you know, a lot of times uh, you get film or video crews or just some dude with a camera, with a video camera, supposedly filming something. And, you know, a cosplayer can be answering questions and all of a sudden the questions can get a little weird. Um, so the cosplay policy, mostly it, it, it emphasizes that um, costumes uh, don't mean consent or cosplay doesn't mean consent. Keep your hands to yourself uh, and um, alert uh, attendees to what they should do if they feel like they ha- they are being harassed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and little things like, you know, don't sign releases until the filming after the filming has started. <laughs> don't sign a release. And then some guys asking you weird questions. Uh, that's a great point about the cosplayers
0: and about what you just said, signing releases.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, cosplayers—that's why they show up <laughs> you know, to see to be seen, and mm-hmm. yeah, and and that's why the photographers show up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you do have to be careful. You do have to be thinking ahead. And um, uh, one of the one of the distinctions in policies. I mean, this New York Comic Con, the anti-harassment. Policy. You couldn't turn without seeing a sign, a mm-hmm. uh, banner. You know, uh, cosplay does not mean consent. Um, in In the in the uh, Comic Con app, you know, there's a big mm. section right there. Here's the policy. Uh, there was some controversy at San Diego, which has a very good record on anti harassment. But they did not want to rephrase the language the specific language of their policy, and i don't I don't have that language verbatim for either policy. They felt that their policy um was very good. I'm sure they got legal um uh um uh, support for how it was done, so there was some back and forth about that that said. Uh, there's really no evidence that there's a major problem in San Diego. They're very uh, attentive to this problem. Uh, The megacons have to be. They have such incredible uh, numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think um, Lance Finsterman, who runs the New York show, uh, said there were two incidents that he knows of in this past Comic-Con. That's about 151,000 people. Yeah. Um, And they were dealt with very quickly and appropriately. So... Uh, I think it's a, a policy that—the uh, policy to make the policy very visible is a good thing. Mm.
1: Absolutely. So um, just to, in our in our last couple of minutes here, are there any particular highlights of what you saw? You said the programming was really good. Did anything jump out uh, at A woman
3: of color uh, panel was very good. Um, it had a, a, a panel of a variety of female creators— uh, you know, some of whom uh, were real pioneers like uh, Barbara, uh, Barbara Brandon Croft, uh, who did a strip in the from the 80s to, to the early 2000s called Where I'm Coming From. It was the first uh, syndicated cartoon strip by a black a female cartoonist, uh, mm-hmm. Aletha Martinez who's a black woman who is a penciler and a veteran penciler and inkler who I didn't even know I'm embarrassed to say who has uh, who is a fabulous artist for, for DC and Marvel and independent projects. That was a really great panel. Um, uh, there was a public conversation between Brian Lee O'Malley, the creator of Scott Pilgrim, uh, and most recently, Seconds, the uh, graphic novel, best selling New York Times graphic mm. novel, uh, and uh, Cory Doctorow, who's doing a graphic novel uh, now with a young artist, Jin Wang. Mm. Uh, it's called In Real Life. It's a very unusual book. It's, it looks at a female gamer going online and running into actually a Chinese avatar. Uh, an avatar for a Chinese player, but the Chinese young man is actually—he's a worker. He, you know, I, I don't know if you, how much you know about um, online g- uh, gaming, but—but mm-hmm. but, you I know, don't. just you, go ahead and clarify. You can—he's yeah, yeah. a gold miner. So in this particular game world, uh, you, you know, some of the players go in and they do arduous tasks that you can be paid for. So that basically, Western players can go to them pay them money.
1: Like actual real world money. Yes,
3: pay them actual real world money that can be deposited into account and to get the online money that allows them to level up very quickly. So you can kind of do it without going through all of the labors and missions that you have to go it, to do it's, it. It's offshoring. It's offshoring, but it's also kind of exploiting third world labor. Right. And uh, these guys they work in and they sit in front of a screen for 12 hours a day. They don't have much health care at all. Uh, it's 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 tough work like immigrant... Well, they're not immigrants because they're right where they are, but essentially it's the kind of labor that we see with migrant workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, it's a really interesting look at another side of the gaming mm-hmm. world that doesn't get wow. talked about. So Cory Doctorow and Brian Lee O'Malley, you, you can't go wrong. Um... There, you know, there is so much. George Clooney was there, if anybody cares about that. <laughs> <laughs> what was he doing there? Well, the, some, he was there as part of the movie thing. I mean, in New York, the other difference between New York and San Diego, I mean, San Diego has far more movie and TV right. uh, uh, appearances by stars, uh, uh, and the biggest stars, than New York does. But New York stepped it up a little bit this year with Clooney. I'm not quite sure what he was there for. And, you know, it wasn't on my beat. Right.
1: Yeah, may, maybe he just likes to read comics. Well, that could have that could be the case. Yeah.
3: I think he said. Although I in what I read, he said something like after the Batman movie that I made. I think he made a Batman movie like years ago.
2: Yeah. And
3: uh, apparently it was awful. He said after that movie, I didn't think I'd ever be invited back to Comic Con. <laughs> <laughs> so, there you go. <laughs> well, at
1: least he acknowledged that yes. it was a, a bit of a flop. Well, thank you, Calvin. It's always great to have you here, and um, you you know so much about all the little details of this culture. It's wonderful to. Here.
3: well read more comics all right that's that's,
1: that's always good <laughs> advice all right always great to have you on the show That's a thank pleasure
0: you. oh calvin thank you so much and all now right. a we'll- final
1: word from our sponsors
0: hi i'm patrick
4: swenson author of the ultra thin man and you're listening to Publishers weekly radio
1: and that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Join us next week for an interview with another performer, Scott Ian, author of I'm the Man, the story of that guy from anthrax. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing.
0: In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com PWRadio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes. Available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.